Well, church, it's good to be able to be here again today to be able to worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. So grateful that we get to do this. Today, we're going to be continuing on in our summer series that we started last week on the book of Proverbs. And uh, we'll be learning from the wisdom of this wise king through the scriptures what it is, how we are supposed to live. Now, last week when we started off looking at the book, uh, I talked about how the book of Proverbs was grounded in the fear of the Lord and that these Proverbs need to be read with an eternal perspective in mind. Basically, a life that is lived according to God's Word, according to His wisdom, uh, the Bible's way of showing us how to live, is a life that shows the world around us what it is like to be a restored individual, a redeemed human being. Now, today what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus on Proverbs chapter 2, and I've entitled this message, Grow Up Godly, Grow Up Godly, Adulting, Adultery, and Affluence in Confusing Times. I've been thinking a lot about growing up as um, I've watched people in our church uh, just even a number of years ago who were just young kids. Now they're becoming teenagers and, and, and taller, and my own little children have grown up I can't help but think, you know, what is the effect of growing up in a church, that community that teaches about God and urges young people to live their lives in a way which honors the Lord Jesus Christ? I think it's absolutely critical. But also important in this is to understand uh, how our society functions, what it does to young people, and what are the competing messages that we actually hear today in our world, and how that is different from what the Scriptures have to say. I'd like to take us back, you know, a bit in history Uh, to the Industrial Revolution, which began sometime in the 1760s and continued on later, a little over 200-something years ago. Basically, if you were to look at North America and uh, in about 200 years ago, there were a lot of major technological advances that were being made, incredible scientific breakthroughs and stuff, and also in just the last 100 years, these things have accelerated and basically reshaped the way that our society not only functions, but the way that education actually plays a role in our lives as well. So in the 19th century, if you were to look at society, society was largely broken up into two groups of people. There were adults and there was children, and there really was nothing in between that. Now, all this changed due to the changes in technology and so on in society, which led to the rise of compulsory education, which also became longer and longer. The idea that you would have kids who would not go to school and simply went to the mines to work was becoming more and more rare. So the vast majority of children were spending additional time basically in places of learning. Now, industrial mass production had led to incredible increases sort of in the wealth of North Americans, but it also led to a great need to have enough workers to run the factories and to make sure that society could continue to operate in the way that it does. And so we needed, actually, the ability to mass-produce workers who had the same basic set of skills and the same worldview in order to be able to keep this thing operational. Basically, this fueled, in part, the growth of what I would say is the modern educational movement and also the fledgling high school as we know it today, where students are assembled, they are trained on a common core curricula, and they are also mass-produced to meet the needs of society. Perhaps you never thought about schooling like that, but that is the reason why school functions the way that it does. It is very pragmatic. 16- and 17-year-olds completely were upended in the way that they uh, carried on in life. 
Prior to this, many of them would become moms if they were girls, be married off younger instead, and young boys at 16 or 17 would often take their father's trade and become apprentices instead. But now, because of advances, they were collected together in institutions, institutionalized, driven there with school buses, and thus the idea of a teenager or the youth culture was born. See, in addition to this, another major revolution took place in society, and that was the rise of the personal automobile, the idea that people could have cars. And so teenagers began to purchase these things, and this led to the concept of what we know today as dating. Now, before this, boys and girls couldn't really escape from the prying eyes of parents because there was nowhere to go. But the car and the roadways of America basically opened up society and said, the world is your limit. And they got into these cars young and began to drive all over the place far away from authority and did what they wanted to do. In other words, I would say that if you look at it, personal freedom combined with easy transportation, also loads of free time being in school and the company of other youth was the perfect sort of environment basically to breed a new youth culture that created a certain set of values and beliefs, their own set of right and wrong, something that had never really existed in the history of the world before this. This was so frightening, actually, to the American public that in the 1953, FBI director J. Edgar Hoover published a report warning that the nation can expect an appalling increase in the number of crimes that will be committed by teenagers in the years ahead. And the interesting thing is he was not wrong, actually, with that assessment. Now, it's true as we look at teenagers today and we realize, yes, their brains aren't quite developed in the same way that adults are. We know this, medically speaking. And because of the way that they are, they are prone to more risky behavior. Dr. Lawrence Steinberg is a psychologist at Temple University, and he made a profound observation that I think most of us who have been through this phase would agree is rather self-evident. He said that teenagers often act dumber around other teenagers. Very true, I think. In a simulated driving experiment that he conducted, it was interesting to observe that adults drove the same no matter whether they were alone or had an audience. But teenagers exhibited twice the amount of risky behavior when friends were actually watching them. Now, the point is, long before psychologists confirmed this, Solomon the wise king in the wisdom of Proverbs 13 verse 20 said this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So here's my point, you know, in this. It's that I think that the modern education system left unchecked teaches young people today a pragmatic and a morally relativistic worldview that is reinforced actually by their peers along with foolish and sometimes very risky behavior. It's pragmatic, I would say, that it's primarily geared towards giving you the skills that you need to be able to get a job that will allow you to function in society and make the society function in the way we want it to and that the society considers considers to be value. It's also relativistic in that the society... uh, It's also relativistic in that the education tries to shy away from philosophical or the idea of absolute moral truths, and students instead are encouraged to find truths or beliefs that work for them instead. So again, the idea of what you believe is not about concrete truth, but it's what works for you. In fact, the famous educator, John Dewey, who was an advocate of pragmatism and helped reshape North American education, 
said this, to find out about pragmatism and education, to find out what one is fitted to do and to secure an opportunity to do it, that is the key, he said, to happiness. See, today education is even longer than it was in the past. There's an increasing amount of time that young people spend in schools, places of higher learning, and also, I would say, in what is called experimentation before settling into a family or a career or things that people have considered to, uh, to be traditionally a part of what is adulthood. Now, this has uh, resulted in a new term that you might have heard called adultolescence. So, in other words, you are physically an adult, but you still have an adolescent type, maybe teenager type of thinking in your head. And many 20- and 30-year-olds today, and even 40-year-olds, are painfully aware that they perhaps haven't quite grown up as society thinks they should. And yet sometimes they do stray into the realm of doing grown-up things. And there's a word for this now, and it's called adulting. So when you do things like you pay your credit card bill, you actually iron your shirt, you perhaps are able to buy your first home, you actually get an oil change, you show up on time for a job interview, you feel great about that, then you tweet about it, you put it on Instagram afterwards, and you hashtag and you say, got my first oil change today, hashtag adulting. And the idea behind this, why people advocate this, is because uh, adulting represents a phenomenon that's taking place in our culture in which you have people who are saying there are times in which I delve into the adult world and I do adult things. But unlike most 100% adults, I'm maybe a 20 or a 30 or a 50% adult. And so there's another category that exists now between child, teenager, and adult, but there's this phase of adulting in which you ramp up your percentage of what you are going to be an adult before you go all in. So I think it's a fascinating thing to see. So in other words, it's now possible in our society not to grow up for decades at a time. Now, even though I would say, biblically speaking, this sort of Peter Pan phenomenon is not a great thing, there is something, I think, to grieve in it, but also something, I think, to be encouraged about and to find hope in. I think it is sad, actually, to see that many young people today are actually wasting their lives, uh, the best years of their lives, and... Uh, and, and doing things, I think, that uh, aren't particularly helpful to them or will cost them things in the long run when it's actually too late and they regret the decisions that they have made. Now, given that people are adulting now well into their 30s, I think that old joke that people used to tell about high school, yeah, high school was the best, like, you know, uh, eight years of my life. It actually has to be revised in our culture to be like, no, high school was probably the best 18 years of my life. It's very possible today. Um, so I think... That is a tragedy, I mean, to see in our society today. But, but at the same time, I do think there's a redeeming grace. And that is, in my interactions with high school people, uh, college students, especially grad students and those who are later into their 20s and 30s, as a result of this adulting phenomenon, many people I discover in their 20s and 30s today who have not settled down in life are actually much more open to discussing things like Christianity, other worldviews, where truth comes from, and are quite willing actually to change their views. So I think even in all of this, even though there's some detriment to our society, I am grateful that there's still a grace of God in this in that I found that young people today are quite willing to engage about Jesus Christ and to talk and be willing to accept a change in their thinking. And so for that, I'm really grateful. You know, when I think about the Proverbs and what it actually has to say, God's wisdom for life, 
My point is, if you are young here today and you're sitting or you're online and you're listening to this, I would encourage you, according to the biblical wisdom here, not to waste your life. Don't waste these years and to actually grow up and to gain godly biblical wisdom. Like, I think it's important. I know that our society talks about growing up and pushes young people to do so, even though we have this long period of adulting now. I think it's important for us to understand that the Bible does encourage us to grow up, but I think there's a difference between the Scripture's definition of growing up and the way our society wants us to grow up. The Bible's primary concern is that you don't just grow up and learn how to pay your credit card bills, even though that's important, but that you actually grow up with a biblical framework and that you learn how to make godly decisions, to have godly wisdom. See, biblical growing up starts with acquiring the fear of the Lord. And just as not all older people in this world are true adults in that they could still be adulting in our society, the same thing actually is true for Christians as well. Just because you've been a Christian for 20 years does not necessarily mean you are an adult Christian. I've met so many who are like this. They should be mature, but are not. So my question for us today, church, is if you're sitting here and you're listening to this, is where are you on the spiritual maturity spectrum? Have you grown up? I'm not talking about your physical age. I'm talking about your age in Christ. Does the way you talk, does the way that you live, and the way that you think reflect the fact that you have a maturity about you, a maturity in godliness? Does God's word saturate your heart and your mind and shape the way that you live? So today's passage, what I'd like to do as we look at this proverb, I'd like to cover three things. Okay. In verses 1 to 4, the difficulty of acquiring wisdom, and then the character produced by wisdom, and third, the protection that is offered by wisdom. Okay, Three things in here. And I'd like to work this through bit by bit. So let's begin by reading verses 1 to 4 together. You can follow along on the screen. My son, if you receive my words... And treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. Let me stop here. This is the introduction to Proverbs chapter 2. This is the king getting ready to launch into his teaching on education, not here with pragmatics, for a budding young monarch saying, this is how you need to you know, uh, make your kingdom stronger financially, or this is how you overtake and gain more territory. No, actually, he's going to urge his son to say that the most important thing that you need to learn is not pragmatics, but how to have wisdom at your very core. In modern terms, I would say for us, this would be like parents speaking to their children and saying, son, daughter, do you know what's important here? Let me tell you, before I talk to you about Harvard, what I want to talk to you is about your heart, a heart that needs to be formed in the wisdom of God. Usually we get these two things mixed up. See, this is what a God-fearing parent has to be most interested in, and that is their children's godliness. This is actually the start of what it means to grow up when we talk about things like that. In other words, he's saying, son, before you go out and start hunting for silver on the stock market, what you need to do is to go hunting for silver that is in God's word. That's what you need to value first as you grow up. You know, as a king, Solomon himself 
according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 19, would have had to copy out the law of God himself by hand, and he was commanded to basically read it all the days of his life and to meditate on it, and so that this would be the wisdom he would have to make the laws that would work for his kingdom. And you can see in this text the way that he speaks about having godly wisdom affect you. He uses words like, receive my words, treasure up my commands, make your ear attentive, incline your heart. He piles up all of these words, these verbs, to basically say, I want you, son, to orient every part of your being around godly wisdom. Internalize it, treasure it, put it in your very soul. Now, to be clear here, the father isn't talking about like his own wisdom, okay? But rather God's. I know he says in here, my words, my commandments, as we just read, but he never says it's my wisdom. He always says wisdom. He doesn't say my insight, but he talks about insight. And as you read on afterwards, you realize this is God's insight. This is God's wisdom. His words and his commands are simply the means by which the wisdom of God is to be passed on from one generation to the next. So the father's authority actually does not lie in the fact that I'm older and wiser than you and you're dumb and you don't know what you're talking about. It's not condescending in that way. The locus of his authority is not his extra years of life, nor is it a patriarchal worldview that says dad is always right and you have to obey him because he's the head of the house. No, his authority is grounded in the fact that the wisdom that he's advocating and teaching is God's wisdom here. God's timeless and his matchless wisdom, and so he teaches his son. And at the same time, I think from this text, it's really important to understand that godly wisdom like this isn't automatically acquired, right? You can see the verbs that go in this passage, say, call out, raise your voice, seek it, search. These are all active verbs that tell us that if you want wisdom, you got to dig for it. It doesn't just come to you through osmosis. You know, Psalm, one, Psalm uh, 119, verses 99 to 100 says this, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditations. And I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. You know, I love this psalm here, because it tells us, how do you get biblically wise, more wise than even gray-haired folk in your church? And the answer is meditating on God's testimonies, having his word seep into your soul. It never ceases to amaze me how many Christians think that spiritual growth just sort of happens by living. Actually, it doesn't. Even our world understands this when it says no pain, no gain, right? Same thing is heard for Christians. I've never talked to a disciplined athlete, an Olympian, or somebody who has got to the highest tiers you know, of competitive athletics say to me when I've asked them, hey, what's your training regimen? Like, how'd you get so good? I've never had any of them come to talk to me and say, I don't know. Like, I just, you know, I wake up every day, I have fun, you know, and I play a bit of a sports and stuff like that, and it just kind of happened. I didn't plan to go get a gold medal. It just kind of happened to me. Like, nobody says that because everyone understands that our world, in our world, good things don't just happen like that without training and intentionality. Same thing goes for biblical wisdom. You know, uh, Ignacy Paderewski was an amazing concert pianist who was admired by many. And one time, there was this lady who talked to him about how amazing his skills were and what a genius he was. And he looked at her and he said to her, Ma'am, before I was a genius, I was a drudge. In other words, it was his very rigorous practice schedule that made him so good. 
Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, also spoke about genius and said, genius is 1% inspiration and it's 99% perspiration. Bruce Lee, one of my favorites, famous martial artist said, the successful warrior is the average man with laser-like focus. You look at a Christian pastor and teacher like John Piper, and you can see that in his 30s, you can go and read his schedule online, that basically his preaching skill and his knowledge of the Bible came from a rigorous schedule of studying the Bible week in and week out. Friday and Saturday, he writes, he spent preparing for two sermons, and his daily routine was from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. every day to pray and to ponder. Then on Monday to Wednesday, five hours on those days was to spend studying his Bible for non-sermon-related things. And if you add up all those hours, it's 780 hours a year, or over the course of 30 years, 23,400 hours that he spent in non-sermon study time while he was a pastor. He realized depth of knowledge and true wisdom takes time to develop. In the Apostle Paul, Paul, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but train yourself, he said, for godliness. In other words, you've got to train for this stuff. Train. You have to fight to actually gain biblical wisdom. Nobody becomes wise by simply drifting into it. Memorize, think, apply God's word to your life, and then learn how to live it. Now, verses 1 to 4 that we just read show that growing up godly, and you want to develop to be godly, it takes work. But verses 5 to 11 show us that if you actually pursue wisdom, you are actually going to gain something that's immensely valuable. Read with me verses 5 to 11. Look at this. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. See, this is what happens as a result of attaining wisdom. Those who choose godly wisdom. Essentially what it says here is that Yahweh, or the God, God of Israel, God Almighty, will give you two great gifts. First gift is he gives you, that he gives, will be growth. And the second gift that he gives will be guardian, uh, being a guardian to you. You know, the text says basically that wisdom will actually come into your heart. In other words, and you'll know this stuff not just intellectually, but at the core of your being. You will experience it. In fact, you will experientially know things of like justice, righteousness, and what it means to treat people fairly. See, all these moral words he uses here are piled up to show that Growing up in God is about developing godly character, and that affects the way that you live. That's what it actually means to grow up. You need to be, uh, wisdom will build up your godly character. But the text also says something else, is that for those who are growing up godly, God will guard them actually from error. It says he's a shield to them. He guards their path. See, when you get to know God, one of the things that happens as you internalize his word is that you will get to know instinctively what is right 
and what is wrong, what pleases him and what doesn't please him. And these will become reflexes. You know, the teaching here in the Proverbs is really quite incredible because when you look at the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, you see that the law was written on tablets of stone, but it wasn't written on their hearts. And here you see here that the wisdom of God is meant to actually go deep into the heart, transform your soul so that it works from the inside out. It becomes the way that you operate, the way that you think. It's a transformation of your entire being, not just a set of things that you know that are out there, but something that belongs to you. And it becomes pleasant to your soul, not burdensome. And the scriptures here say that through this godly wisdom, God himself will actually use these things to guard you and to preserve your very life. See, when you really know God and you love him, and your mind is conformed to him, you will instinctually know how to act and to do things that please him. You know, I, I, I referenced this earlier in the service, but I noticed that in the last few days here in Vancouver, it's all of a sudden become really warm, and it feels like summer truly has arrived. You know, I've also uh, uh, finally started wearing shorts, you know, on a regular basis now because of the heat, especially in the upper floor of my place. And one night, I was actually lying on our bed, and I said to Esther, you know, my wife there, I said, "Hun, I'm debating something right now. And without even looking at me, my wife <laughs> basically just said, uh, put on some socks. And I turned to her in amazement, and I looked, and I said, how did you know what I was thinking? And she just laughed, and she said, Sam, I've been married to you for 10 years. I know exactly what you're thinking. And she said, grab some socks and basically put them on. Now, for those of you who aren't married to me, which is like all of you, uh, I need to explain a bit about this. It's something you probably don't know about me, but I suffer from having just cold feet all the time, even in the midst of summer. Some have told me it's a medical condition. Some have told me you need to rub this kind of oil into your thing. I've received all kinds of advice on it. I don't know what to do, actually, with it. But my solution so far is to wear socks, actually, pretty much all the time. As a result, I rarely go without socks, even in summertime. Um, I'm one of those people that commit a cultural sin of actually wearing socks with sandals, and I'm proud of it. So it's, it's just something I do because of the way my feet are. Now, because my wife actually is wise to my ways and she knows me uh, really, really well, she knew that even when I was just sitting there with just a glance of her peripheral vision, that my sockless feet were causing me a problem and mental distress. And so she knew immediately right, right away what to suggest was a solution. And in fact, my wife knows me so well that she often helps keep my sock drawer full Whenever she's outside in the shops, looks for new socks to purchase for me. When we go on vacation, she makes sure that she packs extra socks in the event that I forgetfully forget to bring some socks with me. In other words, she always has my back or my feet really covered. She knows in every circumstance, especially related to socks, what would Sam do in this particular case? Now, I thought about that as I was pondering my toes this week, and I realized it's a silly example, but it really works, actually, when it comes to the things of God. Not WWSD, what would Sam do, but WWJD, what would Jesus do in this particular circumstance? My question for you is, are you so in tune with God that whether you're out on vacation, whether you're shopping, whether you're lying there on the bed next to your spouse, or you're just about your home, and you're looking at a regular domestic situation, would you know what to do? Do you know so intimately the heart and the mind of God that whether you're out shopping or whether you're at home, you know instinctively what to do because your heart has become one with him? That's my point. Does godly, is godly wisdom 
something that exists only on the pages of a Bible that you sometimes read? Or is it something that has actually transformed your heart in the very way that you think? Let me give you some examples of this. For example, when people get richer and richer around you, especially here in Vancouver, do you find in your soul a jealousy developing there, anxiety even? Or does your Bible-saturated mind run to Proverbs, like Proverbs 30, verse 8, that say this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, what I'm asking from this, guys, is have you read this and put this into your soul? Are you biblically wise enough to pray to God, Dear Lord, please, don't make me too rich because I'll be in danger of forgetting who you are as my God. But also, God, please don't make me too poor lest I do something like steal and dishonor your name. Do you know how to pray like that? Or perhaps when you're suffering from physical pain and your pain is so great, does your mind run back to Paul and the Corinthians and say, God, three times I've pleaded with you to take away this thorn in my flesh. It threatens to overwhelm me. Three times, Lord. But I hear you say to my own soul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And if that is true, oh Lord, help me to live by that. Let me live by grace and not good health. Or perhaps as a result of your choices to follow Jesus, you have been ostracized from your brothers and sisters. You maybe have been kicked out by your family. Does your biblically saturated mind know how to run to other wisdom literature, like Psalm 27, verse 10, which says, For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Do you know that God is a father to the fatherless? Do you know that he is more dear to you than any spouse or any other earthly relationship that you have? Does that kind of biblical wisdom live inside your soul? Because if it does, it will change the way that you live from here. See, friends, godly wisdom is not something that just exists out there. It shapes who you are, and it grows in you godly character. Godly character serves to guard your life from going down the wrong path that will ultimately destroy you. See, and as we look now at verses 12 to 22, we're going to actually see very specifically two types of temptations that godly character will guard you from. Solomon is very wise here. Let's look at the first one here, verses 12 to 15. The text says here, about godly wisdom, godly character, what it will do, it delivers you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Number one thing that it says here, first thing that it guards you from, I think he's talking about here violent, evil people who are trying to lead you to a path of easy money or affluence. Now, I get that because you have to remember this book as a whole. And if you look back at Proverbs chapter 1, he's talking about the same type of violent people who are trying to entice the young son and say, come over here, let's kill people, ambush them, and take their money and get ahead in life by doing this. Let's take the blood of the innocent. These people actually don't just rejoice in doing evil, but they actually walk with the orientation of their lives in the direction of what he calls ways of darkness. Furthermore, when you read about them, it says here their speech is perverse. Now, 
he's not just talking about like dirty jokes or like filthy language and other stuff like that. But I think perverseness actually goes far beyond that. In fact, perverse speech or corrupted speech can actually be very smooth talk, as you'll see later with the adulteress. It can actually be smooth. It can actually be um, polite, good, societally acceptable conversation. But the point is that it's not for your good, and it's actually for destruction. And you see this all the time in salespeople who are crooked, who speak really well, but they're actually there to destroy you instead. For example, if you sell things by weight, maybe you are into business and you can uh, sell stuff like that, or you're contracted maybe to work a certain number of hours, my question for you would be, does your mouth practice perverse speech in the way that you are slightly dishonest in what you're actually selling, the amount you're giving to a customer, or the way you report your hours at work? If that's so, I would classify that as perverseness of speech. That is speech that is not good. It's not wholesome. You can fudge these numbers and have your tongue go into white lies just to get a little more profit for yourself. But you see, if you've invested in growing up godly and that godliness and godly wisdom lies at the core of your character, I hope that verses like Proverbs 20.23 would actually speak to you in moments like that. Proverbs 20.23 says, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. In other words, you stop and you say, I can't do this because this is terrible in God's eyes. I can't lie like that. Or perhaps you have a boss that tells you to say, tell the clients that this is a one-day deal, uh, one deal only and put some pressure on them so that they'll try to complete their sale. You know, my question is, if you're trained in godliness, can you do that? See, when God's wisdom is the very treasure of your soul, he guards you from walking down the road of evil men. You'll find their speech to be crude, filthy, and abhorrent basically to your soul because it tastes foul to your appetite that finds only the wisdom of God to be pleasant and delicious to you. That's how godly character rescues you from these evil people who would lead you on a road which is ungodly. Now, easy, dirty, unrighteous money is a temptation for all people, and this is a big thing that we need to guard against. But there's another great thing that the wise king understands that needs to be guarded against, and that's also found in verses 16 to 19. The text says, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. See, here we see the temptation basically to easy sex or the forbidden woman. And she's forbidden because she's actually another man's wife. But she uses smooth words here. Just as the evil people had evil words, she uses smooth words here to get what she wants. Now, the point here that the king brings up is the reasons you should not trust her. Why? Is because she's ultimately a covenant breaker. She does not keep her word. She can't keep her promises. She can't keep the promises to the man or her husband of her youth, nor does she keep the promises she made to her God. And that's probably uh, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And my point is this. If there is no God, no higher standard... No, what does it ultimately matter at the end of the day when someone breaks their vows? Yeah, you'll hurt some people. You actually, you'll damage your spouse. But I've heard people say all the time in our culture, if love is lost and you no longer feel it, don't I have the right to be happy? Shouldn't I divorce somebody and find a relationship that I really love? Our culture might say that's perfectly acceptable. But the question is, is this the way that God wants us to live? You know, it's common in our world, but 
the wise king's point here is that the reason it's wrong is not just because it's societally wrong or people will frown on you for adultery, but he says adultery is covenant-breaking. It's lying. It's not keeping your words. And it dishonors the God who said, who made the institution of marriage and designed the institution of marriage, the love and sacrifice and commitment that exists in it, to be, the per, to be an image of the perfect relationship that exists between Jesus Christ and his church, the holy marriage that is made in heaven. See, the woman lies here in that she tries to convince the young fool here that her bed is the gateway to pleasure. But the truth of the matter is, from a biblical eternal perspective, her bed and her house is actually the gateway, the proverb says, to death, ultimate eternal death, and it will kill you. And God says, don't go there or else you will die. See, when we think about sex and the marital relationship, we realize that it is a gift given to us from God and is meant to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And in the physical union, we find a picture of the freedom that the first man and woman enjoyed naked and unashamed in the Garden of Evil, uh, Garden of Eden. It's basically a physical expression of the spiritual union that God makes between a man and woman when they commit to each other in the bonds of marriage. And so to us as Christ followers, adultery is so wrong because it denigrates the meaning of marriage. Marriage was meant, which was meant to be a visible picture of the invisible relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. People look at that, and they're supposed to see the glory of that, and when we commit adultery and that we are sexually immoral, people don't get to see the relationship that God is supposed to have with his church. So the wise being, the being who has grown up in godliness, cannot go down this road lest they reap the benefit, reap the destruction of eternal death and also dishonor God in the view of marriage that God wants to teach the world. That's why godly wisdom is so important. It will guard you from these two great temptations. Now, the ultimate benefit is actually given here in verses 20 to 22. Look at this with me. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. See, I love these verses because they tell us of the benefit and the ultimate gain that we will have by fighting our sin and growing in godly character. See, nobody wakes up and says, oh boy, like I have to be able to sin today. It's so painful to sin, but I just feel like I, I better do it and, and, and get it over with today. No, nobody sins because it's painful. People sin because it's pleasurable. And the way that Christianity and God's wisdom teaches us to fight against sin is not by just saying, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. The longer you do that, eventually you'll fail. God's wisdom teaches us to fight against sin by replacing the joy of sin with an ultimate and a greater pleasure and says, this is what will guard you. This is where you're going. Like Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross not despi and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus fought his pain with the thought of future pleasure with God. And so he did not remove himself from his suffering by calling angels to his side. And so we are taught the same thing. 
Do you want to know how to live godly? Do you know how to get away from the temptation to easy affluence or easy sex? Look to the eternal horizon. Look to what God has promised us in his word. Have your character redefined by godly wisdom, and you will say, this is not pleasing whatsoever to my soul. This is incompatible with what I like to taste. And when I look to the future, I would rather have that being in the presence of my God over anything else that this world has to offer me. You know, church, there are no shortcuts, you see. There are no shortcuts to attaining godly wisdom. You know, whether you are today adulting or you're actually a full adult in the world's eyes, ultimately what I'm asking you today is have you stopped spiritually adulting? You may be a grown-up here, but you may not be a grown-up in Jesus Christ. That is actually what the Bible is most concerned with. Are you growing up to be a 100% mature, spiritually godly person? And as you treasure biblical wisdom, God will guard you, actually, from the destructive paths that other people in this world are offering you to take. See, every young person here actually has a decision that you need to make. Either you follow path A that leads to life, godly wisdom, godly character, true love, and security, or you take path B that goes in the opposite direction— False love, no true security, and temporal pleasure that ultimately leads to destruction. See, as young people, you might not even realize that, that you've made a choice, but by the way you live, you are actually, actually on one road or the other. And the question is, what road are you on? You know, for many of people, maybe who are listening to this and you're not a believer, you might not think, maybe there is no God. How do I even know that the discussion about two roads are real? How do we not know that all roads eventually lead to the same place? All religions will find their way to the same ending, and that all people, when they die, will just disappear into nothingness. What, what does it matter, the road that you actually take? And my answer to that is, I think it's true that there really are true roads. And you know that, actually, because of the work and person of Jesus Christ. You see that Jesus, as recorded in the Scriptures, lived a perfect life, and he walked the perfect road of righteousness. And because of that road of righteousness, he should have had a perfect ending to his life. And yet you know when you read about Jesus, the ending of his earthly life was far from perfect. He ends with his disciples running away from him, and he dies on a cross. And you stop and you look at that and you say, that's the death a sinner deserves. Why does this righteous man get that kind of an ending to his life? And the answer to that is, of course, as the Bible says, is that we are sinners and that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross on our behalf so that we who are sinners could receive his forgiveness, his perfect life, and that he could bear the wrath of God. In other words, what does Jesus' life and his death show us? It shows us there are two paths and that what happened was that Jesus Christ walked the road of the righteous and then he took his cross and he placed that road of the right- cross between the road of the righteous and the road of the wicked that we were all walking on and said, you cross over here. I will go from the road of righteousness and cross over to the road of the wicked, and I will take the ending of that road. And you, whom I really love, are walking on this road and have no hope of any other ending, will walk across my cross to the other road. I will exchange it for you. That is the reason I came. That is the reason I died. How do you know? How do you know there are two roads? Because you can see the road that Jesus walked, and you can see the ending of that other road. Can you accept that actually by faith? That Jesus Christ, who sees all of eternity, who is fully God and knows this world and knows reality as it truly is, if this is his assessment of what is going to happen to all of us, can you accept that actually is true? This is why the resurrection so matters to our lives. 
If Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, then his words hold immense weight and value. And perhaps, perhaps he has seen something that you, with your academic, atheistic mind, could never have seen or understood. There is a reality that goes beyond the reality that you have lived with all of your life. And the question is, can you accept that? You know, for you who are Christians here and you already believe that such a reality exists, let me ask you, you know, maybe you're struggling here today with peer pressure, friends who are urging you to walk down a road of destruction and darkness. And I want to say to you, the end of that road is terrible, and it is not a good road to walk because its end is death. Or maybe there's temptation to you right now to say to participate in illicit sex, to commit adultery. Just remember that as the proverb says here, the smooth words that you hear that lead you to this bed are actually smooth words that lead you down to the place of hell. The ending of this place is death, and it is not a place you want to go to as well. The exhortation given to us as believers here is to say, load yourself up with godly wisdom. Let that transform who you are, your very character and your soul, so that you will see clearly what awaits at the end of these roads, and that you will love what God loves and hate what he hates. See, my question for you today is, if this is your struggle, can you trust him? Can you trust him today that his word actually speaks truly? You know, friends, I think that the word speaks rightly here. The goal of our life is to be godly. I don't care whether you make a million dollars. I don't care even if you receive the finest education in the world. I don't care if even you have the most perfect-looking family. The most important thing in this life is not whether you go to Harvard, but where your heart is. Do you know him? Do you love him? And have you learned to treasure up biblical wisdom in your soul? And if you do so, God's promise and his guarantee is here. It will go well with you at the end of the day. Friends, as we live and strive to live these godly lives that Christ has asked us to live, may the world be treated to an image of godly people, redeemed image bearers, and be drawn to our God and to worship him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am so grateful, God, for the wisdom of Proverbs. And I pray, Father, that here you would help us as your people to not spend our time spiritually adulting or walking down a road to easy affluence or to adultery, O oh God, but to chase after you. I pray, Father, that as we pursue wisdom and we fight for it and we dig for it and we treasure it and store it up in our hearts, that it would truly guard us, God, from these roads that lead to death. Help us, God, to savor your word and to find it to be so precious and valuable and help us to build godly reflexes in our soul so that we wouldn't just say with our minds, what would Jesus do? But that we would know instinctively, God, what Jesus would do. Help us, God, to savor you and to love you above everything else and help us to represent you and your precious, beautiful son to a world that no soul needs him. I pray this, God, in Jesus' name.